Hello, welcome. You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a bite-sized parenting podcast, a place you can find advice, understanding and support as you care for your small humans. I'm Siobhan Hunt. How much do you know about gender diversity? How would you feel if your child identified as a different gender than they were assigned at birth? I'd like to think I'm fairly well educated, open and empathetic. I feel as a parent, I need to be both to understand other children as well as my own. But if I'm honest, I'm actually quite ignorant. Neville Sisson came out as a lesbian, transitioned gender to male, and finally discovered they were non-binary. Neville has written The Pronoun Lowdown to educate and celebrate gender diversity. Hi, Neville. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. How important is the celebrate part of this book? I mean, it must get tiring to be constantly educating others about gender diversity. It feels like there's something a bit more lively in this book. Yeah, I think, look, it does get tiring, absolutely. And I think that a lot of trans and gender diverse people have inadvertently become activists, despite not necessarily intending to be or wanting to be. And so I guess uh, in that I decided, all right, well, if people are going to ask me all these questions, I may as well make it my career and and charge money for it and um, (laughs) and help that uh, lead my life. And so I guess, yeah, what I really want to focus on with the pronoun lowdown and also with my other book, Finding Navarre, and generally in the way that I approach the world is there is nothing wrong with being trans. There is nothing sad about being trans. Being trans is a gift. It is a gift onto the individuals who experience it. It is a gift onto our families, whether they may feel it at first or not. Um, but there are a lot of things to celebrate about being trans and I think that you know for the most part trans communities are really trying to pivot from this uh, investigation and um, maybe fetishization almost of gender dysphoria which is the acute discomfort that people feel inside their bodies or in the ways that they are perceived in society based on gender if it is not matching with the gender that they feel inside and we're pivoting from that kind of uh tragedy narrative a little bit and if you look at if you've watched disclosure the um documentary on trans representation in the media it goes a lot into that sort of tragic narrative that we've seen of transness in the media but we're pivoting towards gender euphoria what does it actually mean to feel completely validated and affirmed and wonderful and whole and magic in everything that you are? And, you know, I've spoken to a lot of trans people throughout my life and not every trans person in the world actually experiences gender dysphoria. Not everyone feels that acute discomfort. But I would argue that probably everyone to some extent, unless they are agender, experiences gender euphoria, that really sort of elation. I describe it as like a warm, sickly, sweet kind of feeling. And I think focusing on that just gives this much more positive and optimistic spin to the trans experience because our lives are lively and bright and beautiful and magic and colourful. I mean, queerness is something to be celebrated. Our parties are the best. There's there's a reason why hen's nights are often at gay clubs. You know, we know how to get down. So I think instead of like looking at it as like, oh, I feel so sorry for these people. It's so awful. We need to look at the society in which makes it seem that way. Because really when we are loved and accepted and supported, we live beautiful, full and incredible lives. Now that's the point we want to get to. How close was your reality to that experience when you were discovering who you were, really? 
I guess it's hard to say because obviously it is relative to everyone's own life. And um, But I, how was it for you? Yeah, I mean, I can look to older trans and gender diverse people and think I had it pretty good, um, but it was awful. <laughs> it was a pretty yeah. bad time, you know, I think. Um, I often describe parents a little bit and, and, you know, recognizing as well that I don't have children, so I am coming at it from a certain angle, but I mm. think parents to some extent have a sort of built-in GPS system for their, for their young people and have an idea of where they want their kids to end up. So whether it's, you know, become a doctor or a lawyer or get married and have kids or please get off the couch one day. You know, there's like some idea of where they want them to be. And I think that all of us within our lives take twists and turns that differ from the expectations of our parents, you know, for whatever reason. Like it, it doesn't have to be gender and sexuality. It could be, you know, um, dropping out of a course that they wanted you to do. It could be marrying someone of a different ethnic background if your parents are really not cool with that. You know, like there's lots of different decisions that we make that differ from our parents expectations and so I guess you know for me coming out multiple times because I came out I guess every couple of years to keep people on their toes <laughs> uh, I think that was just a constant reassessment of the GPS where my mum had to do a lot of rerouting to get me back onto the track that she wanted for me uh, so I guess I advocate for the obliteration of the GPS a little bit and to actually you know meet young people as themselves and who they are and to lead with curiosity rather than prescription. I suppose my, as a parent, the thing that I feel I would struggle with is I appreciate the idea about leading with curiosity, but I feel a great responsibility to protect my child. Yeah. And I think my fear would be if one of my children were transgender, my fear would be, uh, that I don't know enough to help them, that I don't know enough to support them because it seems to me that we are still some distance away from society um, accepting that beautiful picture you painted at the beginning of transgender identity. And I think that would really scare me. Like I'd be like, damn, how do I, how do I help them? How do I protect them? How do I make this a healthy experience for them? Mm. Because I can't change the world around them necessarily. Um, what would you say to parents who might have that fear? Yeah, well, firstly, you know, I want to say thank you for your openness, because I think that those are very real experiences for parents. And I think there's probably so many times as a parent where you're like, I'm not cut out for this or like, I don't know. <laughs> Every well. day. <laughs> I'm not qualified, you know. And so I think that uh, that's not unique to the idea of having trans kids and feeling out of your depth. I think that's unique to being a parent in general. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, what you were speak speaking about of that desire to protect and to look after your, your kids as if they are sort of organs living outside of your body um, yes. is so real. And I think that that is often the place that parents are functioning from. And so sometimes, and I know this wouldn't be the case with you necessarily, but I think in the past um, or in certain families, you know, some people are so worried about their kids and want to keep them safe that when they see them, I guess, differing from society's norms, they react in a way that is protective by sort of trying to condition it out of their kids. Mm. You know, they don't want them to get hurt. They don't want them to be bullied. But what that actually ends up doing is you become your child's first bully. Yeah. That is something that they will remember for the rest of their lives. You know, unfortunately, you just can't, 
you just can't do that. You can't change who your children are, even if it is a phase or it's shortly lived or whatever. You just can't change that. What you can do is try to build in your children resilience and strength and pride and self-love so that they do have that strong sense of self to meet a bully or to meet the hardships that they will inevitably encounter in their lives regardless of gender and sexuality. And if you yourself are not feeling qualified or don't know enough, I think that is a really beautiful fuel to learn about these sorts of things, you know, and I, and I would hope for that from anyone. I think that if you are feeling insecure or you're feeling incapable of, of tackling a certain topic, that is such a great excuse to go out there and read up and brush up on that. And also there are so many resources out there nowadays, and there's also lots of support groups for parents of gender diverse children. That is actually a particular organization, Trans Family Victoria. You know, there's lots of different spaces you can go and say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing and I'm worried I'm going to mess up my kids. Um, and <laughs> they'll be like, great, so so do we, uh, but at least we'll do it together. And um, <laughs> here are some of the things we've learned. And, you know, that's why I try to make a lot of my writing really accessible as well. It doesn't use fancy academic terminology. It's like, let's talk about this as people. Let's just, you know, let's work on this together. And I really try to build a lot of empathy as well for the experiences of cis people in, um, you know, child rearing and in navigating some of these issues because they can be very complicated. What difference would it have made to you as you were going through your multiple coming outs? I love that. Would it have made a difference had you been able to connect with people who were experiencing similar things, not just online? I know that online is um, a very easy way to access other people, but, you know, at the moment if your kid's going to school and um, it's a new school, you try to set up play dates with other kids that you think they'll get along with. Mm. I mean, is that one way we can support our kids is trying to find a community that um, does understand and celebrate yeah. gender diversity absolutely absolutely I think you're right you've hit the nail on the head I think you know surrounding your young person with community is one of the best and most powerful things you could do when I was you know presenting as a tomboy from the age of four my parents sent me to therapy had they sent me to other tomboys, <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know what that actually would have been like because going to therapy made me feel like there was something wrong with me and I was getting bullied quite a lot, so it was also to do with that. But had I been surrounded with other young people who were exploring gender in similar ways, I wouldn't have felt so alone uh, mm. and I think that would have made a really big difference for me. And I suppose if you're like me and don't have much experience with transgender people or you or don't understand what your child's going through if you connect with another, another community then you're going to find role models for your children yeah, so that's but exactly older people right. right and I think that's so important and look maybe that also means that you're going out and seeking babysitters who are queer or gender diverse you know and wanting to have more of those people in your child's life, regardless of whether your child is trans or gender diverse, right? Like having mm. diversity in the, you know, those processes throughout your child's life is so crucial so that they understand that the world looks different than just their family structure and maybe just their inner world. And I think that's, yeah, I think that's really, really crucial. And, you know, I've met a lot of young non-binary people and they've come to my book stuff or they've you know met me through things that I've done and 
they've said to me like you're the first non-binary adult I've ever met and Mm. by being that it shows them that they're real that they're valid that there's a future ahead of them because we have so few intergenerational relationships and role models to look up to and representation I mean I stopped imagining my future when I realized I was trans because there was no one to look to for what it could be So I think, you know, really having that role modeling is so important. And I run a writing group now for trans and gender diverse young people from the ages of 13 to 25. And just the community that has been built in that space has been so wonderful to see. And they're all going through sort of different transition things and different coming out stuff. And to see us all hold each other in that, I mean, what I would have given to have that at 13, I just can't, I can't even imagine. In 2017, you released your memoir, Finding Neville, and you were in a conversation with your friend Fury once about how your mum responded to your coming out and wanting to transition. And this conversation, I believe, was recorded somewhere. Um, So you were talking about your book with Fury. And you said in that interview that you had to manage her grief. Mm. Um, And I have heard that spoken about before, that parents said they needed to grieve losing their child, losing um, that gender of that child, like their daughter, and then they gained a son and then um, moving forward to being non-binary. Do you feel you changed as a person when you transitioned? So for me as a parent, right, because for me as a parent, I go, well, okay, there is such a thing as gender disappointment where a parent wants a girl and they get a boy and and there's a whole conversation around that. Mm. But when I look at my children now, I think, well, you'd still be you. You'd just be a different sex. I mean, can you talk to me about that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that grieving process is something that absolutely exists. And I think to some extent, you know, it is very real and and valid because there's a lot going on. It's a very emotional time. But I think what family members are grieving is not their child, but the expectations that they had of that child and, and the GPS that they had set. And I think that that is the grieving. It's like, oh, okay, well, you know, you're not, I guess you're not going to get married and have kids. And it's like, I'm 13. Like, when did I say married and have kids? Like, where was that contract that I signed upon birth? You know? Like, oh, okay, well, I guess you'll never be a mom or something. It's like, I, I don't know that I want to, you know. So I mm. do think it really is a sort of grieving of expectations and projections. Um, I think my mom would say that I'm just as, difficult to work with now as I recognize it (laughs) Um, you know that I'm just as snarky that I've got the same sense of humor that you know I'm I'm a bit furrier now but I look the same um, and if you love your child and you really you you know if you really love them unconditionally then you want them to be the fullest version of yourself why would you want them to be a shadowed insecure um, miserable version of themselves you know and I think this grieving process is a very dangerous one because while you are grieving the child that you've lost hypothetically you will lose the child that is actually there and that's something that I had to explain to my mom is like, you're prioritizing a person that never existed above a person that does and is right in front of you. And I need you to know that this relationship is not necessarily unconditional and that if you can't get on board, then I will have to, I'll have to leave, you know, mm. and we were so close and it was like, this isn't worth it. 
And mm. if you're experiencing that grief, like as I said, obviously that needs to be put somewhere. It needs to be worked through. I highly recommend going to a therapist, talking about it with your friends, um, you know, doing the work to figure out where it's coming from. But as long as it's not being projected back onto that child, then that's fine, you know. But I think that was something that my mom did quite a lot of. Like she would, she was quite aggressive towards me as if I had almost killed her daughter. Um, and that sounds really awful and it was really awful like it didn't last forever and she's amazing now and we're very very close but um, that was a deeply painful time for me because it was like well yeah I do feel immense guilt and yeah I wish I wasn't trans and I'm sorry for ruining your life and (laughs) it it was just so awful I was like all of the terrible things you're saying to me I've said much worse to myself you know and the reality is that we're dealing with young people trans and gender diverse young people who are attempting suicide at 48 percent you know that's one in two trans young people are attempting suicide and those are statistics but those are also my friends my community the young people i mentor me you know and so the cost is really really high here like it's not it's not political correctness you know it's not a uh, left-wing phases that are coming through our politics it's people's lives you speak really clearly now about gender diversity and fluidity um, and about the idea that we are always evolving but was that always clear to you because when you talk about those statistics obviously there is I guess judgment and just not supporting trans kids but also how much confusion is this process for children given as you mentioned there aren't that many pathways that we can offer them so if you're born and you're heteronormative and you've got everything ahead of you is just straightforward because it's all been paved out for you it's all really obvious does it make it harder and confusing is that part of the process for children as they come to recognize who they are yes absolutely absolutely and you know don't get me wrong while I might be articulate on this now that's because of many many years of of talking about it I certainly wasn't when I first came out and uh, hence the many comings out so yeah I think what's what's challenging is I mean, generally, I think having these sort of models of what our society should look like, whether you are heteronormative or not, can be harmful for a lot of people. I mean, there's pretty high mental health statistics within all communities. Um, I think that for the most part, and maybe COVID taught us this a little bit, a lot of us are not very happy with our lives, you know, and not very happy with the paths that are laid out for us. So, again, I think a lot of the experiences that trans and gender diverse people have everyone has you know when we talk about Mm. body insecurities and we talk about wanting to change our bodies to better reflect how we feel inside everyone does that you Mm. know I mean we all undergo those sorts of processes whether it's something like cosmetic surgery or whether it's just going to the gym or spending a lot of money on beauty products or fashion or whatever like we are all engaged in these kinds of performativities of gender Um, and so when it comes to young people figuring things out yeah I think things can be incredibly confusing especially if you don't have much representation around you if you don't I mean the media looks very different now to what it did when I came out in 2013 but even so like it's hard to imagine what a non-nuclear family might look like and again that's applicable to sole parents it's not just for trans or queer people you know but I think I think the thing is, you know, when you are queer and when you're trans, 
there's a really beautiful revolutionary process of rewriting those um, supposed milestones or those pathways. And that's really empowering and liberating. But at the same time, when you're spending heaps of time deconstructing, you don't often have a lot of blueprints for how to reconstruct. I think that was a big process that I went through was I was like, okay, well, I'm tearing down the marriage institution and I'm tearing down gender and I'm tearing down, you know, monogamy and I'm tearing everything down. And now I'm just looking around me and I've got rubble. (laughs) That's great, but I need shelter and I need somewhere to, to grow and to evolve. And I don't know how to build because I've never been taught that. I don't have models of, um, healthy queer relationships or queer futures I have not seen it uh, so I don't know where to go from here and that is a very uh, shocking stark and depressing experience I think. Speaking about that um, pulling down of those uh, institutions or belief systems in your introduction you wrote that after transitioning to male I'm just going to quote you here. I felt better, stronger, and more like myself, but it still wasn't right. I didn't want to perform masculinity. I accepted I was never born in the wrong body. I was born in the wrong world. And I just found that such an interesting articulation of that, your experience is part of identifying as non-binary, saying that both female and male genders or the um, concept of those genders are restrictive? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's in part uh, a political decision, but I think it's very much in part who I am. Like I just, I couldn't transition from one box of restricted gender norms into a slightly larger box of restricted gender norms. I just just don't have time for that shit. And I don't know who (laughs) does. Like we have such complicated, busy lives. And I mean, especially if we're talking about parents, I don't know how you all do it. And I certainly don't know how you have time to uphold gender norms. Like, you have much more important things to do, you know? So I guess for me, it was the liberation from that. And when we really, when we really, really look in an open-minded way at history across the world, our conceptions of women and men in the ways that we understand them now are a very new invention. This is not, uh, you know, an ancestral understandings of gender at all. Uh, What it meant to be a man in the 1950s in North America, for example, is completely different from what it means to be a man now, you know, as the sole breadwinner or as the, you know, whatever. And so those things are, are ever evolving. And it's actually quite a lot due to colonization that our our ideas of gender have manifested in such a strict binary prior to colonization many cultures and even now have lots of different understandings of gender there are you know six genders within judaism for example there are indian hydra javanese wadia um, hawaiian mahu like there are so many different understandings of gender in the world and whiteness and white supremacy and colonization have just kind of squeezed everyone into these two categories, conditioned people out of their cultural practices and forced us all to conform and assimilate into these performances of gender. And I think that they're really restrictive for everyone. And if we look through, you know, a feminist framework, like those gender norms are oppressive to women and they are also oppressive to men the expectations that we put on men of masculinity and being strong and being brave, there is a reason why male suicide rates are so high. 
you know, these understandings and these expectations, they really, they're not liberating anyone. You know, when I do the work mm. that I do, I'm not doing it just for trans people. I'm doing it for all of us. Well, Neville, it's, um, it's such a fascinating book and I encourage everyone to get it. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. That's Neville Zizan and their book is called The Pronoun Lowdown. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. I'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email me at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.